0: Well, good morning, family. It's been good, be, it's been good already to be together, hasn't it? A good morning of celebration around the Lord's table. Uh, good music. Thank you, Miley, for that uh, little bit of toe-tapping. We have something to celebrate. There is power in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He has saved us from sin. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, open up to the little book of 1 Timothy... And to chapter 2 and verse 8. Pastor Aaron has led us wonderfully over the last uh, three weeks in a study. Oh, it's time for Dismissing Children's Church, by the way. If you want to head down, sorry, I've fallen out of practice already. Um, But uh, Pastor Aaron has led us to this point, verse 8 in chapter 2. And uh, we want to dig into the Word. But before we do... Let's, last week, we talked about the importance of prayer, and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now before we go into His Word. Father, we are so grateful for the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, which has washed away our sin. We've sung about it. We've read about it. We have celebrated it in the, uh, in the communion pictured in the, in the body, the body and blood of Christ pictured in those elements. So we thank You. We thank You that You've brought us to Yourself and you brought us here this morning to gather together, to worship, to fellowship together, to learn together. We pray that You would, this morning, just be with many of our folks who are struggling right now. I think of our brother Dennis Peth. I ask that You would give him strength and comfort in in his battle against cancer. Think of our sister, Ashley Dozier, uh, as the doctors try to uh, figure out what's going on with this leukemia she's been diagnosed with. We ask, Father, for wisdom for them and and, uh, your grace upon her. There are a number of our folks recovering from COVID. We pray your hand of healing upon them. We think of our president as well, who is... uh, now has this disease. We pray for his recovery. We pray for him, for everyone in government, as we were reminded last week. We ask, Father, that you would bring our leaders to faith in Christ. We desire to have godly leaders over our land. We ask, Lord, that you would bring that to be. We ask your hand upon the elections upcoming. Father, above all, we we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Father, in these moments as we come to your word, we ask that you would uh, open it to us that our minds might comprehend and understand what you have for us. Father, more than that, that our hearts, our wills will be receptive to hear and uh, that we would then be faithful to live accordingly. So, Father, bless your word this morning for the glory of Christ, and for our own good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to just remind us, as Pastor Aaron uh, pointed out, I think, in the first week of this study, that the real purpose of this book can be found over in chapter 3, in verses 14 and 15. This letter was written to a young pastor, Pastor Timothy, who Paul had left in the city of Ephesus to uh, take care of a church there, to correct some problems in this church where Paul at one point had invested three years of ministry. And he writes here to Timothy in chapter 3. It's not our text this morning, but I'll just quickly go there. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, that is in returning, that you may know how how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This letter is to inform us how we are to behave in the church. He's not talking about how we are to behave in a church building. Uh, That's often what we think of when we say church. We think of the building. That's not the case. He is talking to us as the church. And by the way, the, the early church, most of them, or a good majority of them, met in homes. They didn't have church buildings. But the church, one way to look at it is the people. Every one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are the church. But he's writing here to the people, the individuals who are the church, but also specifically as we become the church gathered, as we come together as the church. How are we to behave as the people of God and especially when we come together as the collected, assembled church of God? That matters because worship matters. Our gathering together as the body of Christ matters. It's important. Just not that long ago, we concluded a study in the book of Hebrews. You may recall several times we we mentioned chapter 10 where it informs us there in Hebrews that we are not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. We are, and and he says, as is the habit of the custom of some we are to gather together there are many christians who don't get together regularly weekly with their brothers and sisters in christ and the scripture says we ought to get together it ought not to be the fact that we we don't gather now there are legitimate times for us to not be together illness legitimately may keep us away from gathering health issues, tragedies, um, (laughs) snowstorms, or even, as we've learned recently, pandemics can keep us away for a while. All of those have at times interrupted either our personal ability to gather or our corporate ability to gather. But it should not simply be inconvenience that keeps us apart. Just... Don't feel like it. Or I've got a few other things to do. It shouldn't be inconvenience. It shouldn't be laziness. We just didn't want to set the alarm or we slept through the alarm because we stay up too late playing around. Those things are really not an excuse. I think the scripture says. We need to be together. And all the more as we see the day approaching, Hebrews 10 goes on to say, as we see the coming of Christ get nearer, all the more important it is for us to gather. Every week, hundreds uh, hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters in Christ literally lay everything on the line to gather with their brothers and sisters in worship. They put their their jobs at risk. They put their finances at risk. They put their freedom at risk. And they put their very lives at risk. This very day, very many of our brothers and sisters in Christ and countries all over this world are risking everything for the, the blessing of meeting together. And so we need to take it seriously. We need to make it a priority. Sadly, those of us with freedom often don't consider it a priority. Those of you who are watching at home, it's been a valuable thing in this time. There are legitimate reasons for you, for many, to be away. But it is plan B. It is not the norm and is not the best. What is best is face-to-face when we can When it's possible, it should be a priority for us. Worship is important. The gathering of the body is significant, and that is the focus of this passage. But there are some things that are getting in the way of the effective gathering of this church in Ephesus. Worship matters, but there are some things that are impeding, that are hindering Effective worship with this church in Ephesus. Some of these things we may discover have some commonality in our life. I warn you as we work through this passage that the Apostle Paul might step on your toes or my toes once or twice. And if he does, just understand it might be coming. He's going to talk to the men and he's going to talk to the women. You might find that some of the things he says to the men might step on your toes, women, or some of the things he says to the women might step on your toes, men, or vice versa. Much of this is applicable to all of us. And as we work through this passage, eventually we're going to find ourselves right in the middle of one of the most hotly contested disputes in the modern church. And so with that in mind, you might want to buckle up your seatbelt because this might be a bumpy ride this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I hope you have it open. I think you'll find it valuable to have the text in front of you. The first concern here that he has has to do with men, the males of the church. He says, I desire then that in every place the man should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And I said the man, it should be the men, plural. His first instruction here is to the men. And he says to the men, he says, I desire. That means he's expressing a strong desire. And it's more than just a wishful desire. I hope that you do this or I want you to do this. This is much more like your mom when she would say to you, I desire or I want you to clean your room.'" That wasn't a list, I hope you clean your room someday. That was, I want you to do it. I expect you to do it. It has the idea of a command. That's what's behind this thing when Paul says, I desire. He's expecting the men to do this. And he says in every place. He's implying not just anywhere, but when he says in every place, he's talking about in every place where the church gathers so Paul is saying whenever the church meets, he's expecting the men, he's instructing the men, the men to lead in prayer. To take the lead. To take the initiative. Because as we learned last week, in verses 1-7, through seven, prayer is important. Prayer matters. Prayer is significant to the effectual impact of the mission of the church in spreading the gospel. It's important in our worship. Prayer is important, so he says, men, take the lead, take the initiative. May I say one of the reasons he has to say this is because, sadly, women are often the most faithful prayer warriors in the church. But it ought not be so. It ought be the men who take the lead. He's saying, gentlemen, we need to step up. That includes, I think, not only in the gathered church here, but when we gather in our little mini churches, in our home, with our family, we as men are supposed to take the lead in prayer. And I dare say many of us all too often fail in that. I was convicted last week as Pastor Aaron led us in the importance of prayer. I hope you were too. And men, we ought to be convicted here. He says that as we come in prayer, he says we are to lift holy hands. He's not talking that about that we need to raise our hands to pray. Now that's not a bad thing. It's good. It's one of the it's probably was the most common uh, posture of prayer in the first century. But the Bible has many different postures for prayer. There's kneeling, there's on, on your face, there's all different ways to pray. It's not saying that we need to raise our hands to pray. It's not all at all about posture. It's not even about, literally, about hands. When he talks here about hands, he's using hands as a picture, a picture of our conduct. You see, most, or at least much, of what we do is with our hands, Every day throughout our life, much or most of what we do has to do with our hands. It's a picture of our conduct. And he says that our conduct should be holy. Our conduct, when we come before the Lord, our conduct is we, that we should come with holy lives, with holy hands. When you come to participate in church and to lead in prayer You should have lives that match your confession, men. We are to live lives that are unstained and unpolluted by evil, by wrong. And that's important because sin-filled lives and unrepentant hearts have a direct impact on our ability to pray effectively. James, when he, at the end of James, when he says, he says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Prayer that is effective and is prayer that is fervent and from a righteous life. Psalm 24 makes that point. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Peter speaks to us as men and reminds us that if we do not honor our wives and treat them with care and understanding, Our prayers will be hindered. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them, uh, to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It appears that some of the men in this Ephesian church have been coming to church with unholy lives and with unrepentant hearts and then leading in the church he says it ought not to be so shouldn't happen we are to come to the lord with holy hands hands that deal honestly with everyone hands that work faithfully at our job at our school In every obligation and commitment that we have. Hands that treat our wives and our children with tenderness and with kindness. A second issue with the men, as he says, you're to come without anger or quarreling. We're to put away anger and quarreling. There was apparently a problem here with the men, with dissension among the men in this church. Quarreling and arguing with one another. I've noticed that sometimes men have a problem with anger and temper. Have you ever noticed that? I've noticed that sometimes men have a problem with uh, being a little bit contentious. Because as men, we're kind of competitive. (laughs) And when it comes to matters of opinion and arguments, we like to be right. Right sometimes even when we know we're right or we're wrong, excuse me, we'll fight because we don't want to be wrong. <laughs> we're kind of foolish, he says, guys, shouldn't happen. Back in chapter 1, we saw a couple of weeks ago that the false teachers had stirred up some useless controversies in the church Paul tells Timothy that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Some translations translate that as controversies or disputes. When we get over to chapter 6 in a couple of weeks, we'll see the same problem is there. People are arguing over useless, silly stuff. It's hard to worship. It's hard to honor God. It is hard to fellowship together. It is hard to serve together. It is hard to share Christ and witness together when we are at one another's throats. Paul says, Quit the silly bickering over useless stuff. Let go of your pride. Let go of your need to be right and get along. May I say, good news, that has not been a big problem at this church. We need to be on our guard in this church here at the chapel, but it was a problem here in Ephesus. But We need to be on our guard that that doesn't become the case. Verse 9 begins with that little word, likewise. He has been talking to the men about problems with the men. Now, likewise, he turns his attention to the women. Some problems that... Are there with them. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. As he addresses the women, he says, The first problem here is attire, it's your dress, it's what you're wearing. It's clothing. It says women should dress in respectable apparel. That little phrase there can be translated literally as well arranged. It actually comes from the same root word from which we get the cosmos, the order. It means well ordered. It's not a complaint that the women are a disorderly mess or that their clothes don't match. That's really a guy problem. No. It really means, what he's saying here, is to dress appropriately. To dress appropriately for worship. It's not about clothes that match each other, but clothes that match our our profession of faith rather than contradicting it. There were two issues, particularly as we read through here, that were concerning about how some women were dressing. The first issue had to do with modesty, as he talks about that they need to dress with modesty and self-control. Because apparently some of these women were dressing immodestly. They were dressing seductively. Ephesus, you see, was the epicenter for the worship of the goddess um, Artemis. And in the city of Ephesus, there was the, the grand temple of Artemis. And for one month out of the year, people came from all over the Mediterranean and all over the world to, for a month-long festival to honor the goddess Artemis. Somewhere between a quarter million and a half million people came every year to this grand temple that was uh, listed on the ancient list of the seven great wonders of the world. That's what some artist's conception of what it looked like then. Today it looks like that. There's one pillar standing up. This celebration, this month-long festivity, was an immoral thing. Prostitutes and immorality were just a part of the temple activities there. So, very likely seductive and sensual clothing was not only considered culturally acceptable in this center of Artemis worship, but it may have been quite stylish in Ephesus. It was then, and may I say quite often it is that way today in our own culture. He says, for Women, when you come to church, you are not come to come dressed seductively. You're not to come immodestly. You are to come appropriately for worship of God. The second issue that was going on here is uh, moves with the clothing has to do, I call it, with humility. He says that you're to come respectably with modesty and self-control, not with... Braided hair and gold or pearls are costly attire. I don't think he's saying here that women should have frumpy hair, nor that you should wear no makeup and wear potato sacks. That's not the point. It's not that we are not to try to look attractive and look nice. The issue here is more than that. A couple of years ago, thanks to your graciousness, Janet and I were able to go to the Holy Land and also we were able to tour a few other places, including Ephesus. One of the things we noticed as we went through the ruins of that once great city is that when you were in the downtown sector, we went through some of the, the old condominiums downtown. What we saw was just how huge these condominiums were, even by today's standards, and how lavish they were, again, even by our wealthy standards here in America. And what we realized is Ephesus was full of a lot of very, very rich people. Ephesus was, and by the way, many of those people, or at least some of those people, became believers in Jesus Christ, and became part of this church. And we see that there are instructions for these very people over in chapter 6. We'll get there in a few weeks. But also in Ephesus, besides many very rich people, there were also many very poor people and slaves. Those were the people who kept the city humming. (laughs) They're the ones who did all the real work there. But many of those people became believers in Jesus Christ. And now they came into this Ephesian church. And so in a church like this, you had the very, 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 very rich elite. And you had the very, very poor. And you had the slaves all in the same church. And his instruction here is to those who are very rich and say, hey! What are you doing, ladies? You're braiding your hair as the custom and weave, weaving in there lots of gold and jewelry in there and you're adorning your clothes with all jewelry and your, your, your hands and your wrists and your shoes and everything and you're decked out, you're wearing your wealth and you're making a statement, I'm here. And if you got it, flaunt it. Kind of like a lot of people do today with their stuff. He says, that's not the way to come to church. We don't come to church to stand out. But rather, we come to church to blend in. We don't come to church to separate ourselves from others by saying, look at me and look what I've got. Sorry, you don't. (laughs) But rather, we come to church to be united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever their status, whatever their economic status, their social status, their educational status, we come as equals, as brothers and sisters. We don't come to exalt ourselves, but we come to humble ourselves before an almighty and a, hum, and a holy God. It's inappropriate. Come to church, dressed to impress. That's the point. He says it's better to be known, as he ends that verse, with what is proper, dress yourselves with godliness and good works. It is better to be known for your character than to be known for your clothes. It is better to be known for your good works than to be known for your good looks. That's what he's saying. Peter says the same thing over in in his little letter. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. The first problem was attire, now he t- clothing. Now he turns his attention to a second problem with these women, and that is one of authority. Verse verse 11 says, "Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness." I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Paul explains, in essence, that men are to be the authority and the leaders and the official teachers in the church. And apparently he's talking to some women who's had some problems with that and saying, You need to be quiet. You need to be submissive. And here is where we fall headlong into the mud of controversy in our day, into a great dissension and and, uh, issue among many in the church today. And we come to this as we are approaching the last quarter of our game clock in our church service. (laughs) We've got a lot to talk about in a very little time. It's easy as we come to this to miss the forest for the trees. To get wrapped up in the details and miss the main point. So I'm going to try to keep us focused on the big issues rather than everything that can be covered here. Because that would take us about five sermons. We're not going to go there. But this passage here is one of five in the New Testament. That I think pretty clearly state that leadership in the church is the responsibility and the stewardship of the men. God has entrusted the leadership of the church to the men. We're going to get to another one of those passages next week as we get into chapter 3 and we look at the requirements for those leaders, those men, the elders and deacons. Over the centuries, there has been considerable debate about how exactly that principle is fleshed out in the church. Legitimate issues and legitimate questions that need to be addressed. Exactly what is it then, if God has established men as the leaders, exactly what is it that, that women are allowed to do or should not do in the church? That is legitimate. But what is new in the church, for the most part new in the church in the last 40 years, and especially new among those who uh, we would call today the evangelicals who say we believe the Bible, we take the Word of God seriously, and it is our authority. It is in evangelical circles in the last 40 years, many have said, you know what, we don't, we don't agree with that. And they have suddenly discovered after 2,000 years of human, of church history that, you know what? Men and women have equal access to every church office. Now I remind you, our standard in the church must not be, what do I like? Or what do you want? Or what does society approve of? Our standard and our foundation has to be, what does God say? And so this is a serious issue because many today are abandoning what has been the, the overall view of the church for two millennia. Because it is, I think, the clear teaching of this passage. If you read what he says, does it come across that way? answer is yes. But let's look at it before you throw things at me or walk out. Let's see again what it says. First of all, it says this, first phrase, let a woman learn. And I want to stop right there because before we get into the other controversy, it's easy to miss that first phrase. And to understand that it is significant. You see, for many in the church, this is not a restrictive thing. That very phrase there is like, whoa, What? Because, you see, in first century Judaism, not biblical Judaism, but first century Judaism, women were looked down upon. They were not regarded very highly. The rabbi, the typical rabbi and typical Jewish man would pray every day, Lord, I thank you for not making me a Gentile nor a woman. Women were not considered, it wasn't considered important that they learn. They weren't necessarily restricted from learning, but there was no real effort to teach women the word of God, the Torah. In the first century world, women in many places, or perhaps most places, were not valued very highly. Paul says, women are to learn. Women need to be taught the Word of God. They need to be equipped to know God, to love God, to follow and to serve Jesus Christ. That is not a new thing in Scripture. We go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God says, let us create man in our image. And He says, male and female, He created them in His image. Men and women are equal in as being image bearers of the glory of God. Men and women, they're also there in Genesis 1, are equal in the mission that God has given us on earth where he said that they are to rule, let them, men and women, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the creation. We are equal in our our status as rulers of creation. We are equal in person. We are equal in the image of God. Paul affirms that as believers in Christ in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus As men and women, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the same Father who loves us. We have the same Savior who has saved us. We have the same Holy Spirit who indwells us and who empowers us and who has gifted us for service. We have received the same grace from God. We have received the same forgiveness of sin. And we have the same eternal destiny in heaven. The scripture is clear. As men and women, we are equal before God. Yet, the scripture is also clear that in both the church and in the home, men are to lead. There is a difference in role. We are equal. But there are differences in roles and men are to lead. That may confound us. It may confuse us. We may not understand it. We may not even agree with it. But the scripture, I don't think, could be clearer. And while it may confound us, it is illustrative. It it pictures, in a sense, God himself. For God the Father and God the Son are equal. They are equal in person. They are equal in glory. They are equal in power. They are equal in holiness. They are equal in righteousness. They are equal. And yet, the Son submits to the Father. Jesus, you recall, time and time and time again says, I cannot do except what the Father wills. Yet not what I will, but your will be done, he prayed in the garden. Somehow the relationship of men and women is a picture of that. Equal in person, different in roles. And so Paul tells these women, let the women learn, but women quietly. You need to be quiet. Interesting, that little word, quiet, doesn't mean absolute silence. It's it's not the word that just means, you know, Shut the mouth and never utter a sound. In fact, the word is used earlier in this chapter. Pastor Aaron read it last week when he was talking about for us to pray for kings and all in authority that we may live, remember the word, quiet and peaceable lives. It's the same word in English and in Greek. And the word there means calm without agitation, that may mean be quiet, <laughs> but it means certainly don't be a troublemaker don't be don't stir up dissent. I think is the point. Secondly, he says they are to learn with all submissiveness. It's really the same word that's used in a military sense. A sergeant places himself under the authority. Un- He submits to a colonel and to a captain, to a general, to those who are above him in rank, but they are not above him in terms of value as a person. I have known men of all of those ranks. Not one of them is above the other in terms of value, but in the place of the military, there is an order. And so God says it is in the realm of the church and in the realm of the home, there is an order. It's not about value. It's not that women are, that are, that they are inferior. It's not that they are less competent. It's not that they are less godly. Most of us would, especially of us men, we know the truth that in many cases, or most cases, it's exactly the opposite. Women are more competent. They're more godly. And yet women are called here, Paul says in the church, don't usurp the authority of the man in the leadership or the teaching. What it's not saying is that women can't pray or that women can't teach or that women can't speak out for God or that women can't ask questions in Sunday school class or wherever. It's not saying that women can't express opinions. It is saying, however, that in some way there are limitations in the public worship and in the context of the church Limitations that God has placed so as not to take away from the role of men as leaders. Okay, we can quibble over what those exact details are, but the principle I don't think could be more clear in this passage or in the other passages that we will see at other times. Paul moves on from the principle there and the problems of attire and authority and he moves quickly and I'll have to move quickly here to the reasoning behind it. Again, many today who try to explain this away and say, no, 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 that really doesn't matter because men and women are equal and we have equal access to to that those roles of leadership and teaching in every area. There is no distinction. And they camp out on that one verse in Galatians 6, which we agreed with. And Paul said that we are we are one in Christ. We are equal in Christ. There's neither male nor female. But this passage and the others, they say, well the the issue here is is that these statements were cultural they were dealing with problems that were very specific in these churches or in this culture, and because of that these these um, roles here and these limitations were cultural and they don't not universal they don 't apply to us today. The problem with that view, if we read the text is that each time Paul gives the reasoning behind these rules. He takes us not to his opinions. Well, here's what I think. He takes us not to the problems. Well, here's the problem in the church. And there, that's the reason. He doesn't take us to the culture. Well, because, you know, he doesn't take us to the lack of education or equipping of women at that time. Or he doesn't take us to even, well, Jesus said. He takes us back to the Old Testament. And here, and in 1 Corinthians 11, he takes us right back to the very, very beginning, to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He says this, rather than saying this is a cultural thing, he says, let's go back to the creation. Let's go back to the beginning. And he says, reason number one that that men are to lead in the church is because of the creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. God created Adam. We look there in Genesis chapter 2, where he gets specific and more detail about the creation of the man and the woman. And we see he creates Adam, and then things happen God has Adam do some things, and, and God says, Now, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. Eve was created after Adam to be his helper, not vice versa. Paul says that's reason number one. Reason number two Paul gives... For why men are to lead in the church is because of the fall. He moves to Genesis chapter 3. He says men are to be the leaders because Eve was deceived. Now by this, I don't think he's saying that men are to be the leaders because women are more greatly flawed than men. That's a false statement. Nor because women are somehow less, uh, they are more gullible and vulnerable than men. I don't think that's the point at all. I think the point is simply that men and women are equally deceived, excuse me, equally flawed. But God has made men leaders because men are differently flawed. And for whatever reason, in God's knowledge, he says men are to lead. Stupid as we are, men, flawed as we are, (laughs) incompetent as we are, we're supposed to lead. And God has good reason for that. I don't like to say that, and women, you probably don't like to hear that, but I don't see anything else that we can say from this text and the rest of Scripture. No time to elaborate, but Paul's point is to say the order of leadership is rooted from the beginning in our creation and in our fall. Lastly, I want to move on because there's one more point. It is, according to most every commentator I've read, this is one of the toughest verses in all of the Bible to understand. But I think it's here because Paul is putting it here for your encouragement, women. Having just given you some kind of bad news, yeah, women, you need to back off here, not be contentious and difficult, and you need to submit to the leadership of the men, You may be asking the question, well, what's in it for me? (laughs) This kind of stinks. And I think this verse is here because it's to be an encouragement. Now, as I've studied this week, I came about, by my count, there's at least a good six legitimate understandings of this verse. We can't get into that and debate them all, so I'm just going to tell you what I think it says from my study. I leave you to wrestle with it, okay? Okay. So this is not the gospel truth, but it's what I think it's saying. I believe the word say... Oh, let me read the verse. I haven't read it yet. Got to read it. Yet she, the woman, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What it sounds like is, women, you have babies, you get to go to heaven. First glance. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. And we know that that contradicts the rest of Scripture. and We won't even get into that. Salvation is by faith, by trusting Christ alone. It's not by works. So it can't mean that. What does it mean? I believe the word saved here is used the very same way that it's used over in chapter 4. We won't go there this morning. We're going to get there in a week or two. Where Paul says to Timothy... Um, Well, I won't even go there. It doesn't mean being saved in a spiritual sense in terms of having our sins forgiven and going to heaven. It's not that type of spiritual use of the word saved. It's using it a different way. A legitimate way to translate the word is to bring significance or fulfillment. So Here's what I think he's saying. Women, the role that God has given to you does not allow you to be the authoritative teacher, leader in the church. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a significant place. Women are the mothers of the world. The role of mother is belongs exclusively to you, women. Men can't do it. We're restricted from it. Everybody I know is... Came here through a mother. Right? Not only that, most of us can bear testimony to the fact of how significant an imprint they put on your life as I move on. Men are denied this role of mother just as this leadership role is denied to you. But... As you bear children, as you pour yourselves into them, as you nurture them, as you teach them, and notice the little change in pronoun there in verse 15. From she to them. I think that's significant. I think the pronoun is changing to the children. As they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control... You see, as you moms pour into the next generation and they follow Christ and become godly men and women, you will discover great significance and satisfaction. It's not saying that the only place for women is to raise children, but it is saying that children are significant and you have the opportunity to make a lasting imprint, as the old saying goes, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, I think is quite true. I was listening this past week to um, a little bit of TV. I saw the Supreme Court nominee, Amy um, Barrett, being giving an interview a year ago, it was on tape, in Washington, D.C., and I really wasn't paying much attention, but I just heard these words, and my ears perked up, and I went, whoa! Did she just say that? She did. Did you hear? She said this, what greater thing can we do than raise children? She continues, that's where you have your greatest impact in the world. This lady is up for one of the highest positions in our, in our land. She has already achieved more than most of us. <laughs> she's finished law school. She's be, she practiced law. She's taught law in one of the most prestigious universities in the, in the nation. She has become a judge, and now she's nominated for the Supreme Court. And she says, what greater thing can we do than raise children? That's where we mo- make our most significant impact in the world. I think that's exactly what this verse is saying. Women, take heart. We may not understand or agree with why God has ordered, how he has ordered things and why he has ordered things. We, we may not understand or agree with it. But he calls for us to embrace whatever place he has put us and to serve Him there. And if we will do that, what we will discover is joy and significant impact for the kingdom of God. That's the point of this passage. We've covered a lot of stuff. And I hope your toes have been stepped on. Might have. I just like us to have good company. But I hope that we've learned something. And I hope that we will take this to heart, that we might be an effective church. Men, let's step up and lead. Let's make prayer a priority. Let's come with clean hands and pure hearts. Let's all of us put aside any foolish controversies, you know, stupid things like masks and no masks and everything that people fight about today. Let's come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Men, let us lead well. Ladies, be gracious to us as leaders. (laughs) Pray for us. Let's together serve Christ with all we are and all we have. Father, what a convicting passage in so many ways. We all have a lot to fess up to. Men, we have to fess up to the fact of how often we are such poor leaders Maybe some women here are at times poor followers. All of us are at times followers, and all of us are at times bad at that. There's an awful lot of stuff here. But Father, I think most of us here, our desire, our heart is to follow you. And as difficult as it may be, we want to say, Okay, Lord, I want to put your word into practice in my life. Whatever changes we've seen this morning that need to be made, I pray you'd help us to begin making those this week. That we might live wholeheartedly for you, that your name would be exalted, that the the gospel would go forth powerfully in our world, that people would be attracted to Jesus Christ because they see your grace, your love, your power in us. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.